If you would be turning in your Bibles to John chapter 20, we'll be in verses 19 through 23 this morning. Uh, and as Philip said, and as Matt mentioned earlier, we're wrapping up our sermon series on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. And so it's important that you not let go of what you've learned previously, so I'll leave it to you to make sure you're uh, looking back over some of the previous sermons and even maybe using the devotional material to make sure that it uh, sticks to our ribs, because this is going to be a foundational sermon series uh, for us as we consider yearly the Holy Spirit. So what we'll, we'll start doing is after Easter, we'll do a sermon series on the Holy Spirit, only fitting since Pentecost occurs after Easter uh, on a yearly basis, so that we don't forget the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And there's plenty of stuff for us to look at throughout the Bible. And so we'll build on this as we go along. This particular passage is, uh, again, it's important that we, we understand that this is what Jesus is saying to them is incredibly important. What we saw previously was he was sharing stuff with them before he was going to the cross. He's now gone to the cross, has resurrected, and this is his uh, parting words for them in the Gospel of John. So we want to pay close attention to what he says because he actually doesn't say very much in terms of total words, but he says quite a bit in terms of what those words mean and the implications that they have for our lives. So this morning, what we want to get from this sermon is that the risen Christ grants us his peace in the Holy Spirit for the purpose of proclaiming God's redemption in a fallen world. So by way of introduction, let me ask you a question. What has brought you the most peace in your life? Not, not temporary, not, not something that, that, that got you by for a little while, but really has had a lasting impact on how you view the world, how you view safety and security, how you view who you are, how you view who God is. What, what has actually brought you the most peace? And then uh, by virtue of that, uh, who have you shared this with? Right? It's interesting, the things that impact us the most, we tend to share with other people. And the things that don't impact us very much, we tend not to share a whole lot about. It can impact us in a number of ways. I'm sure many of you have seen the Saturday Night Live skit uh, where uh, they take a drink of the spoiled milk, right? And the guy's like, oh my God, this is disgusting. You have to taste this, right? So there are some ways in which we, we share noxious experiences because misery apparently loves all kind of company. And we also share uh, very important experiences as well. So it, it's usually we share what impacts us one way or the other. So that is going to be important for what Jesus is going to say to us through his disciples after he has risen. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is John 20, verses 19 and 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, what's interesting about this is, is Jesus has been crucified and he's now risen from the dead. And there's something very important about this scene that uh, we, we need to take note of. How did he get through the locked door? Well, I think C.S. Lewis probably captures this the best of what I've come across thus far in a book called The Great Divorce. There's a sense in which in the resurrection, reality, that reality is greater than this present reality. You understand? Like 
you're not tasting food rightly this side of the resurrection. You taste it better in the resurrection that you are now undergoing between the now and the not yet as a redeemed person. You ought to anyway, but not, you're, you've not yet tasted its best. You've not yet seen the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. You've seen some beautiful things. I hope we all have, but we've yet to see it in its full, redeemed, made new glory. It won't require sunlight, by the way, to reflect it to us. It'll require merely, not merely, <laughs> importantly, the presence of the Lord himself. So this present reality, you need to understand, is limited and less than the resurrected reality to come. Because if not, if this is somehow better than that, then we're being sold a pretty bad bill of goods after all. So for Jesus, that locked door, that barrier to us, something that we would have to either fight to get through or be impaired by, was less than he was. So he could pass through it because he was the greater reality. It was the door who lacked substance, not Jesus. And notice, once he comes through that door, the thing that he says to them, now we have to pause for just a second before we get the gravity of what he says to them. Remember what they had just done, right? They witness uh, the trial of Christ. They witness the crucifixion of Christ. And how did they all respond? Some worse than others. They ran. They gave up on Jesus because it looked like the story was over, which is why they're hiding. Notice they're not hiding so they can plan how to share the gospel. Why are they hiding? Because they're afraid of man. No matter what God had just done, no matter what they had been promised and told would happen subsequently, their lack of faith put them behind a locked door where they were hiding. And Jesus passes through, and notice what he says. He says, you bunch of faithless idiots, what are you doing? Now, that's what we would say. This is us, isn't it? Parents. This is us, husbands, wives. Sometimes our first word to someone is far less than encouraging. And by the way, the plank in my eye on this one makes it hard for me to see yours. Right? So notice Jesus doesn't tell them what they got wrong. Jesus tells them what has been made right. Peace be with you. Now, that's not very many words. And it doesn't seem like a whole lot, but you got to understand what he just said. He just said, everything has been made right. You don't need to hide behind this locked door. In fact, you can lay down your lives for me, and it will be a greater good than you hiding here, trying to protect what is not yours to protect in the first place. He says to them that death has been defeated. Death was arrested. He says to them, sin no longer has sting over you. Peace be with you. And then you notice what he does is he lets them see the greater reality. Now, we've always kind of uh, decried Thomas for wanting to see, to touch, to, to know that this in fact was the Lord. And for those who are in the leadership cultivation course and for those of you who've read 
Michael Williams' Far as the Curse is Found, it's actually not a bad thing to want to touch and see that the Lord is real. In fact, that is to admit that there's a greater reality, that he is risen indeed, right? He's not just a ghost. He is the physical manifestation of the new man, the new humanity, the down payment, the first fruit, if you will, which is scriptural language, that we too will be risen indeed. And not just ghosts, not fat cherubs playing harps on a cloud somewhere. I know Tommy, if he was a fat cherub, he'd play minor threat in heaven. That way it'd go on, right? And so, and so that's not what we are. We are something that will taste and see that the Lord is good. Both of those are our senses and include the totality of who we are. It's our humanity. It will not be lost. It will be affirmed and made new. And so when he says, touch these things, he's telling them this is real. This is worth you coming out of this locked room and doing what I'm going to tell you to do next. And so listen to what Frederick Dale Bruner says about this. He says, the risen Lord's initial gift to his assembled disciples is his peace, which means his love, his forgiveness, his favor, and his blessing. Thus, the first words of the risen Jesus and of his mission to his gathered disciples significantly are not a command, but a gift. There is no preliminary reminder of the disciples' failure to support him in his crisis, no call for repentance or even faith. There is sheer grace. So he pronounces over them their forgiveness for their failure. He pronounces over them his peace with them as gift of grace through no fault of their own. He pronounces over them that they are, in fact, forgiven and redeemed. Now, what's interesting is many of us come in here week in and week out with a number of barriers, a number of locked doors, a number of closed off places where we think Jesus can't go. Week in and week out, we, we, we can harden our hearts to the various elements of the liturgy. We can skip them altogether so they have no impact on us, right? We, we, can, we can refuse to sing because it's in too low a register. We can refuse to acknowledge the words because... We just don't feel like it. And yet, there's something beautiful that happened here this morning. I don't want you to miss it. While there may be some sort of technical reason why we didn't have the confession of sin, I suspect that God decided we just didn't need it to be on the screen this morning. And did you notice what happened? Something very beautiful happened after the part that changes from week to week, the part that we do week in and week out, stuck to some of you. Because we were able to say it without seeing it. We were able to acknowledge that our assurance of pardon is in Christ alone, by faith alone, through God's grace alone, as declared in his word, amen. What a neat picture of how you may have not thought much. There's some of y'all who refuse to say it because you just don't think there's such a thing as, uh, if you're not guilty of it, you just don't want to say it. And that's okay. But I hope that other part gets through. 
that your locked door, that you understand that your locked door is not a place that Christ can't go. That that place that you withhold from him in your worship, that you withhold from others, that you refuse to share, is not a place that Christ can't go. And even more important, what I hope you will understand is that that locked place is not the place that Christ is interested in going and plundering to declare to you that you are in fact worthless. No, it's the treasure trove that he longs to get into to prove to you yet again that he loves you more than anybody who has ever lived. To show you that that locked place that that barrier that you put up between you and him and even God the Father is not actually a locked place to him at all. It's only a locked place to you. And the sooner that you realize that he's already been there, in fact, he's residing there now making intercession for that locked place, for that barred off, embarriered place, the sooner you will be able to walk in newness of life the sooner you'll be able to appreciate the fullness of what these words mean. Peace be with you. And also with you. And so, what are some of the ways in which you have been affected by the risen Christ granting you his peace? I would modify that question to ask you, what are some of the locked places where you think he can't go? What are some of the things you think he can't heal? What are some of the things that you think he can't handle? Because he's just too pristine. Because he's just too good to bear witness to that much darkness. As if he hasn't seen the worst of what this world has to offer up close and impersonal eyeball to eyeball. And so, how has the risen Lord granted you his peace so that you might walk in newness of life? And even better... How are you sharing that with others? Now, let me give you a qualification, okay? Our problem, one of them, is that we want to be instead of become. Did you follow that? See, we, uh, some of you just heard what I said, and it actually made you feel worse about yourself because you aren't yet. You got some places in which you don't currently have peace. But, but isn't that the point of sanctification? Isn't that the point of continuing between the now and the not yet? Because you are not yet. And these things are not yet in miniature. And God works progressively as you are ready to handle and able to receive. We were talking about my daughter the other day and son and, and how since she was younger than Devin, she couldn't understand why in the world does he get to drive and I don't? Well, you're 13. And there's law, which I know you don't regard much of, but we do. Right? And she just, she drove her nuts. She thought there was parody. She thought they were peers. She thought she was ready. Well, when she did get her license, bless her heart, she wound up having enough accidents in a, in a period of enough time, she lost her license for six months. She had a lovely chauffeur in Susan Barham. Uh, she was ready. I thought she was ready. 
Well, if you let me drive when I was 13, I would have got all this out of my system by now. <laughs> You'd never have a license because you have these wrecks at 13. There's a whole different set of penalties for this. You understand. <laughs> but we laugh at her, but that's us. Why is that marriage further along than mine? Why is that person better able to tolerate and not be anxious? Why does that person get paid more money than I do? Why does that person have those opportunities? Why can Amanda sing like a bird and I can't sing worth a darn? <laughs> I just can't. I try. I just sound like Vic Chestnut. So we're all the time looking for comparison and, and wanting to be without becoming, which is the problem in Eden, right? They didn't want to become like God. They wanted to be God. And if we don't recognize that this is one of our besetting sins and our fundamental problems, then we can't hear peace be with you in the same key in which it's intended. That the fact that you have not yet become is not the problem at all. In fact, it's the opportunity. It's the opportunity for you to grow in your understanding of God's love for you and its profundity and its enormity. In fact, it has no measurements that we can comprehend. What a gift to us that the Lord, he, he abides with us and he continues with us and doesn't declare first what's wrong. He first speaks out what is made right. If you would turn back to the text, let's see what 21 through 23 says. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now again, why does Christ have to repeat himself so often with these folks? Same reason it's important for us to repeat the gospel week in and week out to each other. Because we just don't believe it. And we just don't hear it in the right key. And we just don't think that it's true most days. And so he says yet again to them, peace be with you. And then he goes a bit further and he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. See, their mistake had not rendered them unable to serve the risen Lord. Do you understand that? Because I think, I think a lot of us assume that it is our brokenness, it is our inability, it is the sins we've committed that keep us from being able to serve the risen Lord. It is, we way focus on our flaws and our inabilities. We're so overemphasize those things that it is preventative to what it is that God has for us and what he's called us to do. No, it is precisely those weaknesses. It is precisely those places that the Lord makes strong. It is precisely when you are weak, that Christ is exalted, right? Paul says that to us. And so actually that is the one qualification, right? Who does Christ come to save? The sick. Well, what do you got to admit? You're sick. Did he come for the righteous and those who had it all together? 
Does he pick the best of the best? <laughs> no. He just doesn't. And if you, if you think I'm arrogant enough to think I'm qualified for this based on how I think and how I view the world and what I think's funny, <laughs> we're in trouble. The books I read, the stuff I get into left to my own devices, right? Just because I'm wearing a polo button-up shirt doesn't mean that's what's underneath. That's just what was on sale. <laughs> True story. So Jesus says to them, again, because he knows they didn't hear him the first time. He knows we don't hear him. Peace be with you, and I am sending you. It is precisely your failures. It is precisely your inability that I am going to transform into newness of life, that I'm going to recreate so that you go in the image of the second Adam, the last Adam. And so, hang on one second. This thing is driving me nuts. I don't know what's happening. Okay. All right, got it fixed. But, so Jesus is saying to them, I am sending you, you have a mission. So notice what he does. He does this thing that we saw at another point in the biblical story. He breathes on them. Where else have we seen that? In creation, the one time where God, it was a unique aspect of creation, right? Could he not have created man without breathing on him? What was that breathing on him deal? Well, it was the imbuing of his dominion, his ability to um, uh, be fruitful and multiply, and recognize the Lord his God. It was the substance of God being granted to the substance of humanity. And in the same way, this thing is Satan in this cord. I told Jackson I believe in Satan because of cords. Uh, um, but what he's doing is, is he's granting to them all of his power, all of what they will need to do what he's calling them to do. And so, and so what we see here is he breathes on them in an act of recreation, but more importantly, a setting apart, an empowering. So now they have the substance of the Holy Spirit within them. You may say, well, wait, what about Pentecost? That's actually a different sign. That's actually a different circumstance. This is them being empowered to do what we hear him say in Matthew chapter 28 when he says, go, be fruitful, and multiply. But he says it a different way. He says, go, making, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them the things that you've been taught. And he tells them that they have dominion in a way that's different than we understand dominion in this world. He says, I have been given dominion, and I go with you. So is it their dominion to decide what to do with? No, they're ambassadors of reconciliation. They don't get to decide what dominion looks like. He declares what it is. He says, and I will be with you to the end of the age. So when he breathes on them, he's recreating them, he's granting them power in the Holy Spirit. And there's this troubling verse that much ink has been spilt over. And that we wrestle with, and there's not a person that doesn't wrestle with it. I, I, get, I get questions about this fairly often. It says, if you forgive the sins of any, then they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What does that mean? Does that mean that we, like, if you, if you pull out in front of me, oh, man, you messed up for eternity, Doc. <laughs> I am withholding forgiveness. You're gone. Right? Do we have that? Is that the power that we have? 
See, part of the problem is we, we hear this in a radically individualistic way. We hear this as power that we get to decide what to do with. Well, that is, that is a very unbiblical reading. To read anything outside of your own sins as individualistic is to read the Bible poorly. What this is, is the declaration of the power of the gospel that they will proclaim. See, he's saying what you will say, what you will proclaim, it has power. Not power that you choose or you imbue or that you put into it or that you decide. It is already. Don't forget what was said in John chapter 3. Remember what it said. It says that those who are condemned are, they're condemned already. So you're not saying something new, right? Christ comes to not declare condemnation. That's already been pronounced in the first Adam. What he comes to pronounce is peace be with you. I am the second Adam. And so we come as ambassadors of which Adam? Second Adam. So we're not telling anybody that they're dead in their sins and that because we've said it makes them dead in their sins. We're just basically reading the news. We're making sure they understand the bad news so that they can appreciate the power of the good news. So there is something powerful about sharing the gospel with other people, but not because of you, but because of Christ who has breathed on and imbued you with the Holy Spirit. It means that what we speak, what we say matters. And we have to understand it's not about us. And what this affords us the ability to do is proclaim the gospel with a holy boldness that we don't have otherwise. Because we're worried. What's what's the main reason you don't share the gospel with other people? It's all about us. They're going to reject me. They're going to think I'm weird. Because you offered them eternal life. Because you, you, you told them that the God who created this universe, that he loves them? You're weird for that? You know, we're weird for a lot of other stuff, but that ain't what we're weird for. In fact, it's, it's not just the people that we don't care more about them so as to be able to share this with them in a winsome way. See, we try to do verse 23 as if it were in our power. Let me illustrate you share the gospel. Well, let me illustrate from an actual story. Uh, I was in Greenville, South Carolina one time, and apparently Greenville's a hotbed of, of, of street evangelism on Friday nights, or at least it was when I was there. I had a guy hand me a track four different times, never asked me my name, and his head was down. He didn't even look at me, so my person was inconsequential to him. I finally stopped, as many of you would expect me to do, and said, hey, man, I really appreciate that you want me to go to heaven, but my name's Cameron. And he didn't, he didn't he didn't catch it. He just kept his head down. Okay, cool. Get out of the way. Kept handing out. He had so many he had to hand. Apparently there's a quota of some sort. I don't know about this. Even better was uh, a group of folks who handed some tracks to some kids who clearly looked like they needed it. Uh, and these kids tore the tracks up as they were walking away, which you may find noxious. I found even more noxious the response of the people who had given them the tracks. I can't actually say what they said out loud because of children in the room, but suffice it to say, they said, hey, you such and such, you're supposed to read it, and basically called them idiots. Uh, I'm not, I don't know about your evangelism 101 class, but that's not it. 
Um, and so often I think we do something very similar. We try to share the gospel a little bit. When people don't start responding pretty quick, we're like, all right, it's time to break out the shake off the dust verse. <laughs> Which is not what that's meant for. That's not a good application of that verse after all. And so, so it's important that we recognize the key in which this is being said. This, the key in which this is being said is he said, peace be with you to a bunch of failures. And he had to say it twice because they didn't really hear him the first time. And he had to explain to them that this locked door is not what you're supposed to be behind. It's me you're supposed to be behind going out into the world, into the darkest places of all, to declare to those who sit in darkness, come out to those who don't know that God loves them. God loves you. And you may have to say it more than once because after all, forgiveness sometimes has the math of seven times 70, which actually is uh, Greek code for infinity. And so would that we would hear this and the key that it's intended and would that we would actually talk about the Holy Spirit in the way that is most important, which is the agent, the means, the engine by which we are empowered to go and share the gospel. All the other stuff that we could talk about about the Holy Spirit is actually a lesser conversation than that. It's not an unimportant conversation, and we're going to have it. One year coming up, we'll do 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, much to the excitement of many of you all. But without this, to quote chapter 13, Without love, guess what you are? You're just a clanging symbol. You're just making a lot of noise and looking like you got power, but you don't. You've forgotten what matters most of all, the greatest gift of all, which is love. And oh, by the way, we're doing 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 next week, just a little preview. Listen to what RVG Tasker says about this passage. He says, the possession of the Holy Spirit enables the apostles to bestow or withhold, not arbitrarily, but as the Spirit might direct the fruits of redemption which the second Adam had won as they set forth upon their mission of reconciliation, the gospel which in the power of the Spirit they were able to proclaim will inevitably lead to forgiveness of some who hear it and to the hardening of hearts in the cases of others. You should only give up on somebody when the Holy Spirit makes it so clear that it's time to move on that you just about have to be drug away. We are way too quick to move on. I am a prime case. Those who shared the gospel with me early on, they gave up quick, and I don't blame them. As I shared with you a few weeks ago, Mama Gwen, though, she was a pit bull. She would not let go of, of my perishing hide. And she, uh, as she put it, she has a new son. And I don't mind being called her son. So John 20, 19 through 23 is going to teach us a few things. But first, let me ask you this. What are some of the ways in which the Holy Spirit has or is helping you to proclaim to those in your spheres of influence the bad news of their sin and the good news of forgiveness of their sins in Christ? How are you being empowered to go declare peace be with you behind that locked door? Come out. This dovetails with something we talked about a few weeks ago, like we talked about with those with gender dysphoria or something else in that vein or any other vein 
that our first move ought to be to put our arm around them and say, I know you're hurting, I know you're struggling. If you're willing to go this far in your sin, I love you. What can I do to help you? Without compromising the scripture, obviously, and getting to the point where you declare to them the greatest display of your person is not that which will only change temporarily, but that which will change for eternity. So we learn from John 20, 19 through 23, that the risen Christ grants to us his peace behind all locked barriers and in spite of all that we've done wrong. And that the Holy Spirit is given to us for the purpose of proclaiming God's redemption in a fallen world. If you don't have that firmly founded in your doctrine of the Holy Spirit, you don't understand the Holy Spirit. Everything else we could come up with, that is most critical. Listen to what Merrill C. Tenney says in conclusion. He says, now Jesus expected them to continue his work in his absence. As the Father had sent him to speak his words, to do his works, and to lay down his life for the salvation of humanity, so he expected them to deliver this message and to do greater works than he had done and to give their lives in his service. They would have all the privileges all the protection, all the responsibilities that he had during his ministry. Just as he needed the Holy Spirit to dwell in him as we saw at his baptism, so too they needed the Holy Spirit to dwell in them to do greater than he had done. So too does the church need the fresh indwelling of the Holy Spirit to empower us first and foremost to recognize the locked doors, the locked places, the places that we say Christ can't go. And secondly, to recognize those same places and those around us and proclaim the same message that has been proclaimed to us. Peace be with you. And all that that means in its beauty and its breadth and its totality. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that the locked places don't keep you out. Thank you that the risen Lord knows exactly where all those locked doors and locked boxes and dark places are in every single one of us. And thank you that your first message to us is not how we're wrong, but instead that we would know peace is with us forever in the risen Lord, that he makes intercession for us, that we are indwelt fully by the Holy Spirit. We are the temples in which the Spirit and the fullness of the Trinity dwells. Would that we lived with that knowledge. Would that we would be set free in all that that means. Would that we could walk truly at peace that surpasses all understanding. Help us to recognize that is a process. Help us to be patient and kind with it as you have been patient and kind with us. God, help us as we go along to build each other up, to encourage one another, to speak words of life to each other, to pray for one another, to serve one another, and that the world would know who we are by the love that we have and that we share with one another. And may we offer that same love to them as eventual brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the God Most High, that we would not shrink away from the truth of the gospel, but that we would get its order right first. 
that we would recognize that there is power in us and through us in the words that we will proclaim and the things that we will speak over our friends and family. But that power is not totally ours. It's in the finished person and work of Christ. It's in the ongoing person and work of the Holy Spirit. It is in the attributes of our Abba Father. I pray that you would bear fruit in and through us, that we would remember we've been sent, not called to hide. In Christ's name. Amen.